On our last call, we gave guidance that the fourth quarter of last year and the first quarter and second quarters of this year would be the most challenging part of the cycle. We are in a period of peak stress and expect the next two quarters to be challenging, if not more challenging than the fourth quarter. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. We're your hosts, Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. It's Monday, February 19th. So today we're continuing our CRE CLO coverage by dialing in on one of the firms that was at the forefront of multifamily lending from 2020 through 2022. And that's Arbor Realty Trust. So Arbor, as you may have read or seen, has in the past few months caught the attention of one short seller in particular, Viceroy Research. And Viceroy has put out a number of reports highlighting that the loans issued by Arbor and then packaged into CRE CLOs aren't looking so hot from what it can see. Right. So Viceroy spotlighted delinquencies. Also, the fact that a lot of these loans were made to multifamily syndicators, which we know are struggling. And Viceroy has continued to track the deterioration, I think we can say, of this debt. So we talked to Gabriel Bernard, a co-founder of Viceroy, about these reports, about what he expects to see from Arbor going forward, and also whether Viceroy's findings apply to other debt funds, REITs, lenders that are not publicly traded, but did heavy lending to syndicators. One note, Viceroy, as a short seller, makes money when a company's stock falls. So it does have something to gain from these projections. Second, we will also dig into Arbor's fourth quarter earnings for a little compare and contrast with Viceroy's findings. Arbor reported Friday morning, and we chatted with Gabriel before those earnings, and we're also recording this introduction Thursday afternoon. So Arbor's performance is presently a mystery to us, but will be revealed later in this episode. So keep listening. But first, the news of last week. Bob Knackle is out at JLL. Yeah, I think that topped the charts by miles. Yeah, so Knackle had been with JLL for the past six years. Hiten Samtani, a former colleague of ours, broke the news on X. And we don't quite know why Knackle left, but it is certainly worth mentioning that he was profiled in the New York Times on Sunday. So he was drawing some press ahead of the exit. Yeah, one of my sources speculated he could be opening up his own shop, but... You know, again, that has not been confirmed. We don't really have details as to why he left. Knackle did not respond to a request for comment. I saw a lot of people on X, you know, begging Bob Knackle to open up his own shop. Um, I even saw one post that was like, I'm long on Bob Knackle. And that was the whole tweet. (laughs) I mean, he there's been a lot of uh, sharing of his map room, I would say, like in the past month. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure that he... Um, released his email like on LinkedIn saying like, you know, I'm, I've am i left JLL. Um, here's how to reach me. And I'm pretty sure the domain name was the knacklemaproom.com. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> also some Steve Croman news. Croman being one of the few New York landlords that has done jail time. The latest is Croman settled a case with the state's tenant protection unit, which alleged that Croman broke rent stabilization law by renting nine regulated apartments in five buildings through Blueground. Blueground is an extended stay platform, so tenants can lease a unit for 31 days or more. 
It's typically short term, though, and it's not the tenant's primary residence. And state law mandates that all rent stabilized tenants must spend most of their time in their own rent regulated apartment. Yeah, because otherwise they're getting this cheap unit and just letting it sit there. Although I have reported that some tenants have done this, sort of using those apartments as pied-à-terres, and their landlords don't try to evict them, which they are legally allowed to do, because they're figuring that some rent is better than no rent. And that is another unintended consequence of the 2019 rent law, but I digress. So Croman agreed to pay a little over $500,000 for those illegal rentals, which is honestly a drop in the bucket, and he also didn't admit any wrongdoing. Let's... um. Let's touch on your rabbi story, too. Yeah. So um, this principal of an L.A. development firm, his name is Elon Koenig of FMB Development, has alleged that Rabbi Pinto, who infamously was once this advisor to some of New York's largest real estate players, and then he was convicted of bribery charges in Israel and is now Morocco's chief rabbinical officer. Um, but he alleged that the ex-con rabbi quote, burnt his multi-million dollar empire to ashes and planned this entire hostile takeover of his business. So over the course of four years, Kenig alleges that Pinto and three other investors, you know, took stakes in the company and started demanding, you know, payments from them and eventually, you know, had promised this $100 million credit line, but the money never came. FMB is now alleging that all of its properties are either in default or in delinquency or on the brink of bankruptcy. And Kenick said that he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of his own money trying to prop them up, paying for credit card bills, etc. So we'll see how it plays out. Okay, I think we can leave it there. Let's pull back the curtain on Arbor's earnings. And then we'll hear from Gabriel Bernard of Viceroy Research on how Arbor's fundamentals are looking, according to his firm. My name is Gabriel Bernard. I'm one of the co-founders of Viceroy Research. So in the past few months, you all have released a number of pretty scathing reports of Arbor Realty Trust. So I wanted to know, why did you start looking at the lender initially? What tipped you off that something might be wrong with their books? I mean, for us, we're taking a, you know, a good couple of years back to our bread and butter work, which was finding really you know, mispriced or fraudulent American companies and shorting them. Companies like AMC and your GMEs which were just not good, you know, ground for short sellers in the wake of this sort of meme stock phenomenon. That's AMC, the movie theater chain, and GSE, which is GameStop. Hopefully everyone remembers the Wall Street bets craze of 2021. So we've moved, basically we had to, we came together and said, what's the boringest industry in the world? And we landed on real estate, and more <laughs> specifically German real estate. Okay. And so for the last three or four years, we've actually been pretty, you know, knee deep in in looking at German real estate frauds, Swedish real estate frauds, and have worked out, you know, British real estate frauds even, and sort of worked our way back into the US, I guess with, with MPW, which was released maybe two years ago. MPW is Medical Properties Trust. It's a REIT that invests in healthcare facilities. And more recently, Arbo. And I think for us, you know, we had a pretty good background overview of a lot of the multifamily residential space. So for us, it was more about finding what's the worst of the worst. Um, but it, it is pretty much like shooting fish in a barrel at this point. Can you give us a little bit of background about who Arbor's client base is and what type of lending they did? They still do. <laughs> 
I think Arba's largest book assets are something called multifamily residential bridge loans. And in this, in the case of Arba, the bridge loan is to bridge between an investment into a you know multi-unit property, in, in a lot of instances by a syndicate, into a renovation, a rehabilitation of the property, and then stabilizing new rents, increased rents once the properties have been improved, and then into a agency loan. So that's that's the bridge of the bridging loan in, in Arba's case. What has happened in that time, you guys have covered really well, at 0% interest rates, it's very hard to lose money doing that. But the problem with all of these bridging loans is that, I mean, especially in Arba's case, substantially older than the floating rate. Um, so when something was economically feasible in a zero rate environment, suddenly even the best, most blue sky Arba loan is, is probably loss making at this point. The underlying asset that is, and the the borrowers of the the loans. I mean, we've again we've profiled many of them, but substantially we've found that they they do not have the the required skill set to be to be conducting this business, and they don't have the required background to be soliciting investment from investors as well. And by that we mean a lot of them are YouTube influencers and influencers. They're widely connected to other financial real estate gurus that sell five thousand dollar courses teaching people how to invest money and they seem to work in the same circles selling the same products there is a large loophole in which they can get away doing this but this the investor base actually in these syndicates do not seem to be sophisticated i wondered if you could talk about the difference between sort of arbor's interactions with agency lenders and then the cre clo product that they specialize in if we look at the whole multifamily real estate industry as it stands now, there's a much larger pool of multifamily residential investors and investments made in the last sort of three or four years in a zero rate environment. And to satisfy this lending, they had to go borrow money themselves. And then the, the way that Arbor did this was through collateralized loan obligations. This is just leverage. It's, it's, just, it's basically borrowing debt. You pulled assets, being the loans, into, into tranches and you put these tranches for basically on a, on a bond market. And then investors are, are lending to you against these tranches and they have a priority claim and ABBA retains the residual, which means that if there's any shortfall in what the lenders are getting paid in these sellers, ABBA takes the, the first hit after the obvious you know, equity residual amount there. Right? And these are, these are very, very highly leveled vehicles to begin with. Um, I think the, the, on the book, the LTV is about 77%. Um, so that is quite high. Uh, and these were formed substantially old during a very, very low rate environment. And now, again, we've had, a, you know, in, within this two years of 400, 500 basis point swing in the overnight rate to, to now. So the Arbor's loans to their borrowers are floating and the interest they pay to the bondholders, their own creditors, is also floating. That structure that you were just talking about, that kind of waterfall structure where Arbor holds the residual tranches, you know, is supposed to be so that there's like an alignment of interest. But do you take issue with that? I don't I don't take particular issue with it. I think that it is an alignment of interest if you have if you overperform and you're able to overcollect the quality of investors you have or the quality of your borrower pool, then you should be, you know, out earning. The same can be said then if we say, okay, well the CLOs comprise maybe six point seven point six billion out of Arbor's I think 12 or 14 billion total multifamily loan book. Should we expect the quality of that CLO book to be better than they, the ones they hold internally, right? To outperform and to meet the covenants in that CLO uh, or not? That's, and that's the big question at the moment because, you know, as, as we know, we have good visibility inside the CLO right now. 
we don't have good visibility inside ABBA's own book. But we make the assessment that we think that either like for like or the CLO performs actually a little bit better. Okay. So just to kind of recap on that, um, with CLOs, right, you can essentially like replace, you know, if a loan is not performing, you can replace it with a better performing loan. And so Arbor is taking, assumably taking these, the more troubled ones, and then the troubled ones end up on their books. I think the CLO, well, we have seen loans coming in and out of the CLO, loans going out that are delinquent and loans coming in that are good uh, because we, we think that there is a requirement that they need to, the, the CLO has its own debt service coverage ratio covenants and LTV covenants, right, which is measured by the income that the loans bring in and what they have to pay out to the bondholders. And we think that if you have too many delinquencies within the CLO, then they will be in breach. It actually looks bad, but we think it's even worse because it's being manicured to a degree. As far as the transparency issue as well, it keeps them away from prying eyes, like from Viso Research <laughs> and from and from journalists. <laughs> what I've heard or we've heard in sourcing is that nobody really knew that rates were going to rise as rapidly as they did. So when these floating rate loans were made, they weren't really seen as risky. And CLOs have been talked about as like a much less risky thing than than CDOs during the Great Recession. But I wonder what your take on that is. Like, in your opinion, was Arbor in making so many of these loans, was it irresponsible or was it negligent? Or do you think it was just sort of where the market was and everybody got caught with the interest rate rise? I think that the bigger difference will be on the, on the borrower side. Sorry, on the lender side, as in the, the commercial lender to Arbor. Because, I mean, obviously in the Great Recession, those guys lost out big time, right? Lenders to these financial instruments were were not well compensated in the wake of, of this entire crisis. In this situation, um, we're not selling de- derivatives on derivatives of, of pools of uncreditworthy tenants. There is a very bad tenant book, granted. Like, this is a this is pretty, probably some of the worst tenancy, you know, pools in history. Um, but the LTV that covers these investments is what, 77%. Yes, the collateral is still too high. So there is a, a buffer that the LTV will take. There is a then Arbor's residual tranche, which they will be eaten up before the bondholders. So I don't think that by the time those two are, are fully eaten away, that the bondholder is in a, a super precarious position where they've lost all of their investment as well. I think that there is there is some value left in multifamily, it's just not at 3.8% cap rents, which is what they're valuing their book at right now. And it's not at a debt service coverage ratio of, of sub 0.6, which is not profitable. Eventually, these will restructure. But as we've been saying, this is this will likely be vulture funds coming in and buying the debt at a big discount, but at the right price to be able to afford a rehabilitation plan to the, to the owners of the properties or taking them over themselves. In your November report, you said that these loans don't qualify for refinancing anywhere, and it's going to be very difficult to refinance them. Can you talk about, you know, now we're into 2024, um, the Fed has kept rates steady. Can you talk about that refinancing risk going forward? I mean, when we say these these loans are not eligible for refinancing, firstly, we mean these properties don't look like they've been rehabilitated, nor do they have the sufficient rate caps or, or long enough rate caps to qualify for agency loans, 
right? So they haven't been stabilized. You're not able to, to transfer over to this government-backed loan, which is cheap, and then you can sell that property and you can start buying more multifamily residential units. You also don't really qualify for bridge loans with any other bridge lender because you don't meet the debt service coverage ratio tests. You don't meet LTV tests because sure enough, they're going to come and do a valuation of your property and it's not going to be the 3.8% cap rate. So when we say they don't qualify for lending anywhere, I mean, you're going to probably find some people trying to get some sharks lending money to you, but it's not going to be a good result for the syndicate owners. It's not an improved result. And it's not going to be a particularly improved result from Arbor unless someone's dumb enough to go buy Arbor's loan book at par. So I guess that, that's that's how we see the situation. And I'm sure that they've been trying because it's, it's obviously pretty bad. Right. We've seen a lot of syndicators try to modify their loans, kind of knowing that refinancing the entire package is going to be very tr- tough. So coming up with very, very specific loan modifications. Um, the question is whether you can do that on every single property, right? Yeah. I mean, it'll be property by property as well. And we've seen... I forgot, and it was probably from one of your articles, but we've seen one lender that was in scrutiny quite a while say that they've managed to profitably refinance a couple of their loans. But when we look into them, those are the only two loans that had fixed rates. So, you know, again, like that that's fine. You can go refinance your really good properties all you want, and then you, you're just basically still left with all the shit. So it's, I, at the end of the day, it's, it's the same result for, the, for Arbor and for all these other guys, but... Again, we picked Arbor as, as the worst of the worst because its exposure was bad. Its book was by far the worst. Um, and its concentration in multifamily was complete. It's 90 of percent. So Arbor can can buy these loans that are not doing well from the pools, right? Does it have any other tools at its disposal to like shore up the pools specifically? I mean, only in the CLO, but then if you still bring it back into your book, you still have obligations to your creditors either way. I mean, it's really just moving deck chairs around the Titanic at that point because your commitments out and in are still exactly the same. Uh, It will just be, you know, localized localized covenants within your, your CLOs might not breach immediately. When you talk about creditors, are you talking about these repo lines? No, I'm talking about the bondholders of the CLO. Okay, 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 okay. I'm sure the repo lines have their own debt coverage ratios as well, right? And some probably some restricted cash and, and whatever else. Uh, I'm not I'm not as well versed on that side of the of the equation, frankly. But yeah. But basically, the bondholders are still affected, even if Arbor buys this loan and puts it on its on its book. Right. I mean, the bondholders would obviously much prefer that. The CLO syncs with much better assets than Arbor's own book because they will have priority claim over those assets. But as far as Arbor is concerned and as far as the short we've put on, we know that the residual tranche of that CLO is probably going to be bad either way. And then Arbor's interest in the residual tranche of the CLO is over half of its book value. Can you expand on that a little bit? So if we look at the Arbor's balance sheet and we see that all the assets and all their liabilities we get the net book value. I think it's about, I don't know, two point something, three, three billion. Um, about half of that is Arbor's residual interest in the CLOs. Oh, so they have substantial interest in their own. Yeah. Yeah. So if the CLOs, if the CLO fails and they get a sixty percent recovery, 
Arbor's recovery is zero because it all goes to the bondholder. Right. Because they hold those those lower tranches anyway. Exactly. So the bondholders will, will still get a much bigger recovery than Arbor. We think Arbor's at risk because that hasn't been probably well explained. Is that typical of these debt funds that they have such like intense exposure? Um, or do you know? I guess it's hard to have insight into some of them. I think that they, I think they have to buy some of the residual exposure, but it's not compulsory. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there would be other funds that you could sell that you could probably sell these residual exposures if they were good, if they were performing. Mm. Um, but now it's getting to the point where the residuals probably going to be very little because, again, the delinquencies matter in terms of your cash flows, right? If you have a monthly, quarterly, or annual interest to pay to your creditors and you're not doing it, um, or principal even. You still have obligations to your creditors. You can't just say, oh, well, we'll capitalize all the interests of these non-performing loans. And whenever the market picks up again, then you can start paying us back. You can't do that because you've already indebted yourself to your creditors, your bondholders in the CLO and the repo lines. And the, the run rate, their run rate is much longer than these really short-term loans that you have between you and your borrowers or Arbor and their borrowers. So what is the worst case scenario here for Arbor? I mean, I think just the scenario for Arbor is that it has to raise equity if it wants to keep these loans performing and if it wants to handle these restructures in-house, which will be extremely dilutive, as in you're going to have to do it at a big discount and it will dilute the current existing shareholder base, in which case this would be a good short. Or it starts selling loans at a discount which, again, is, is a very, very loss-making procedure. And it's because they haven't been well-prepared for the fact that we had a 500 basis point swing in interest rates. But that's, that's life, isn't it? Someone's got, there's going to be opportunity here. There's going to be great opportunities for debt funds to pick up multifamily residential properties at a fire sale at a right price. But it probably won't be either. That's something that we're trying to figure out, or is who is going to pick up the pieces. There's no sales out there. And we've spoken to a lot of people that have been, you know, probably good operators that aren't seeing a lot of pain, constantly calling around asking when can we start looking at buying some of these non-performing loans. And they're getting crickets at the moment because no one wants to accept the fact that they're non-performing, right? Or the prices that are coming in are still ridiculous. Yeah, they're not willing to, you know, maybe sell it at 20% 20 less than what what they bought it for. They're not even willing to. They're not even willing to sell it, you know, to cover the debt. Sometimes. Do you think you know you talked about Arbor being you know quote the worst of the worst here? Um, is this something that is contained to Arbor, or do you see this being an issue for a number of bridge lenders? Oh no, it's probably going to be an issue for a number of bridge lenders, right? And I think we've already seen that. Whether they are as concentrated in multifamily as Arbor, or whether the I mean, in, at a preliminary stage when we looked at this, we basically had a, a big overview and went through to the trustees and, and requested this data. And we could see that as a whole, the CLO data for Arbor looked the worst. As in short term, that looked like it might collapse the quickest. And a lot of these, you know, lenders or similar types of lenders aren't publicly traded either. Uh, so- sometimes the CLOs are traded, but still very thinly. Even Arbor CLO is not traded. You know, not that we've seen, not that we know of anyway. I'm wondering if you think that Arbor will show its hand at all fourth quarter or it will continue to keep the distress under wraps. I think that there's going to be a serious problem with the auditors if they don't. There is going to have to be some disclosure about 
how delinquent some of these loans are. And I don't think it's, and we've written, we've written a letter to the auditor, but we don't think that it's appropriate that we can see 30, 25 to 30, well, we expect it to be 30% of their loan book by mid-February be overdue, delinquent, and them having 90 million out of 12 billion provisions for impairment. That's absurd. So if we don't see any, you know, an impairment there, I think that's, that's going to, it's not going to, I don't, we don't think it'll make an issue as far as cash flow is concerned because there, there doesn't seem to be any cash flows coming in, right? If these guys are delinquent the loans or the cash is not going to be there. So hopefully, you know, hopefully for us as short sellers, we're going to be proven right. And if we're not, we'll have to, we'll have to have another look, but everything points to, everything points to this being a duck. So, as we mentioned, Arbor released earnings on Friday morning, and right off the bat, CEO Ivan Kaufman did address delinquencies. On our last call, we gave guidance that the fourth quarter of last year and the first quarter and second quarters of this year would be the most challenging part of the cycle. We are in a period of peak stress and expect the next two quarters to be challenging, if not more challenging than the fourth quarter. As a result of this environment, we are experiencing elevated delinquencies. One of the many reasons this is occurring is certain borrowers are taking the position that they will default first and negotiate second, which is not a strategy that works well with us. Second, borrowers need to bring capital to the table to right-size their deals, and raising capital is a lengthy process in today's climate. Therefore, you will see defaults rise initially, until they're able to raise additional capital, and then deals will often be recapped. The company said delinquencies on its balance sheet loan book increased by $115 million in the fourth quarter, compared to the prior three months. And it's expecting more delinquencies to come. Now, it is worth noting that the company's profit did increase to $91.7 million in the fourth quarter, up about 4% compared to the last. In 2023, Arbor reported a profit of $330 million. That's up 17% from 2022 and even higher than 2021 numbers when lending was booming. And on the earnings call, Kaufman did mention the short seller reports. Lastly, I would like to spend some time talking about the short reports that have been written on our company. We want our loyal investors based to understand that these reports are written in a way that is purposely designed to drive down the company's stock price to achieve the desired goal of profit from a short position. As such, the facts, assumptions, predicated future events and marketing conditions, as well as the conclusions in these reports, are exaggerated, laced with incomplete and inaccurate data, and slanted only to provide a negative view on Arbor, and again, truly for personal gain. He did dispute some of the data coming out of those reports. But again, granular CLO data is not available publicly, so we don't really have any way to verify that. Unless we had each month's remittance reports for every CLO pool originated by Arbor. Uh, and while we will not get into a back and forth on the information in these reports, or have detailed discussions on any specific loans, what we will point out is that the short reports state that our CLO delinquencies were 16.5% in December and 266 in January, when in reality, the rates are 1.3% for December and 5.6% for January and as of, today, as of today. More importantly, the 30-day delinquency numbers are 0.9% for December and 
2% for January as of today, which are the numbers the industry focuses on. But I think the most interesting thing to come out of that call was how Arbor was dealing with its borrowers. Suzanne and I have reported a lot on how syndicators are you know, negotiating with lenders to work out loans. And for any sponsors that think strong-arming Arbor into working out a loan might work, Arbor said that they're wrong. Just Could you maybe talk a little bit more about why some borrowers feel it's better to default than negotiate first? That, that seems to be a little backwards given the environment that we're in right now. I can speak from experiences. I deal with it a lot. I'm pretty involved in the asset management side with the asset management group. I think they're being counseled um, that um, if, if you default, the lenders will be more more easy to work with. They don't want the faults on their books. That's number one. And that may work with other lenders. It doesn't work with us. Uh, we're not afraid of defaults. Defaults don't intimidate us. And um, it may intimidate other lenders. That's number one. Number two, for whatever reason, and I'm not sure why, initially people don't think that the recourse provisions on their loan are applicable. And when they get notification of what they're triggering, they really wake up very, very quickly. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking to an internet real estate celebrity. Tune in then.